When we moved here, my mom was shocked. We moved here in the 1960s, and she thought everybody was just going to love Ethiopian people because Ethiopian people are some of the most kind, loving people in the world. But when she came, it was the 60s, and it was the segregated time of our life, and, and they were looking at her like, you're, you're dirt, you know, you're dirt, you need to leave. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect. We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. When most separate, we gather across color, creed, and ideology. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to the Village Squarecast. This is your host, Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for part two of Love and Hate at Home. In this program, we remember the Holocaust and consider our personal responsibility in combating hate and promoting love and kindness. This is a throwback episode airing the second half of an event that was held in February of 2019 that was presented in partnership with HERC the Holocaust Education Resource Council, and Tallahassee Community College in honor of Holocaust Education Week. Barbara Goldstein, Executive Director of HERC, and Heather Mitchell, Executive Director of the TCC Foundation, partnered with the Village Square to make this event happen. If you missed the first part, check out episode 12 of the Village Squarecast right before this one to hear from three of our panelists, Ryan Cohn, Partner and Executive Vice President at Sachs Media Group, Roseanne Wood of the Leon County School Board, and Dr. Dan Lesham, Executive Director at the Hillel Center at FSU. This episode picks up with our fourth and final panelist, Judge Nina Richardson of the Second Judicial Circuit Court of Florida. And after we hear Judge Nina's incredible story, all the panelists join us again to share reflections from group discussions that happened at the event, and also to answer audience questions. After all that, we have two special cameos that are perfect for this topic of love and hate at home. One is Rabbi Shields of Temple Israel. We chatted with him during the last episode, and we're going to share a few more minutes of his wisdom as we close out this topic. And the second cameo is with Liz Joyner, Village Square's executive director, who I think can disarm anyone with her kindness and her understanding heart. And she can explain our complicated situation so eloquently And she really gives me great hope about how we can get to a better place together. And she's probably embarrassed right now, but will she tell me to change this? I'm betting no, because she's too kind. Anyway, all that to say, we have a very busy episode for you today. So let's get going with Love and Hate at Home. At this program that took place a year and a half ago, the audience members had the opportunity to think about action steps that they could take in their own lives to help promote love and combat hate. They filled out commitment cards and then Village Square reminded them several weeks later of what they wrote. Well, we didn't want you to miss out, so we're giving you the same opportunity. To participate, visit ttvs.org love to complete a quick form, and then we'll follow up with you later. Now I'll turn you over to the program facilitator, Sally Bradshaw, owner of Midtown Reader. Little strokes fell great oaks. Little things matter when you don't even realize that they matter. And to that point, we're going to bring up Judge Nina Ashanafi Richardson now. I think everyone knows Judge Nina. She is... (laughs) 
She is a graduate of FSU's College of Law, first elected a Leon County judge in 2008, re-elected in 2014. You may not know this, Nina immigrated to the United States from Ethiopia when she was just five years old. She has been awarded the Distinguished Leadership Award by the Conference of County Court Judges of Florida, and just earlier this evening, she ran to the Village Square from the Florida Supreme Court, where she was awarded, literally an hour ago, the Judicial Excellence Award, which I think has, yes, exciting. It has something to do with the amount of pro bono work that judges do, uh, which is really interesting. I don't think many of us realized how much work you do that is, in fact, sort of outside of your obligation as a judge. So congratulations. Talking about little things that matter, you told me a fascinating story about a mentor. You're a mentor to a young boy that you know, we were talking about we all have our own biases. It's easy for us to sit here and feel good about ourselves and say, well, we're with the Village Square and we support her and we would never do anything that was inappropriate or hurt someone's feelings or acted inappropriately towards someone. We would always stand up and do the right thing. But the truth is we're human beings. We're flawed. We make mistakes every minute of every hour of every day. Hopefully we recognize that. We try to be better, but we all have a certain lens or a bias through which we view other people. And Nina told me a really interesting story with great humility about a relationship she has with a young person. I want her to talk about that a little. Thank you. I'm so honored to be invited. Thank you, Barbara Goldstein, um, long-term supporter of her. Heather Mitchell, thank you for all you do at TCC and to the, to our wonderful moderator. So I want to first say before I answer your question, I lived in Queens. My dad was a professor at Queens College. And so I'm just so excited that to, to talk with you more. And so when I grew up in, in Queens, New York, I had friends from all over the world that spoke all these different languages that he spoke about. It was a very multicultural community. And uh, it was a very welcoming community. And then afterwards, we moved to Massachusetts, where my dad taught at Brandeis University. And that was also an amazing experience. It's a predominantly uh, Jewish university, um, one of the top in the country. And after the blizzard of 77, 78, <laughs> my father said, we're moving to Florida. <laughs> So imagine living in New York and living in Massachusetts, and then we moved to the South. <laughs> and I remember going to a restaurant called um, Frisch's Big Boy. <laughs> and I asked the waitress, can I have some cream of wheat, please, with maple syrup from Vermont preferred. <laughs> She looked at me and she said, Honey, I know you're not from the South. I really want you to try some grits. And here's some cheese. You need some butter? Well, let me tell you something. I love me some cheese grits. There's nowhere else I'd rather live than in the South. And my husband, Curtis Richardson, knows when I make breakfast now, I don't make cream of wheat. I make cheese. <laughs> so I, I share all that to tell you that I grew up uh, with a, a dad who was a professor of ethnomusicology. We moved here from East Africa. And I, I so before I answer that, because I want to give a little segue and how, how I connect to Herc and how I connect to Barbara and her amazing family, my, my life has been strife with situations that involved the lack of tolerance. And however, through these examples of lack of tolerance, I became intolerant uh, of concepts that basically don't have at, their, at the base level love and compassion for other people. And, it, it, and I'm there because there were times in my life I didn't experience that, and I, and I felt the pain of that. And I said, when I'm an adult, I will not um, put onto anyone else anything but love, compassion, acceptance. I'm going to make sure to never judge a book by its cover because all these things I'm sharing with you happen to me. So right out of the gate, when we moved here, uh, and my sister's here, Sunait Ashinavi, <laughs> 
So when we moved here, my mom was shocked. We moved here in 1960s, and she thought everybody was just going to love Ethiopian people because Ethiopian people are some of the most kind, loving people in the world. But when she came, it was the 60s and it was the segregated time of our life, and, and they were looking at her like, you're, you're dirt, you know, you're dirt, you need to leave. We don't like you here. My dad got his doctorate in Connecticut at Wesleyan University. So she left. She said, I can't take it. It's just too much for me. It's killing me. I can't live in this country because I don't understand why they hate me so much and they don't know me. So she left. My parents ultimately got divorced because my dad wanted me to get and my sister an education in the U.S. Well, my dad remarried. He married an amazing uh, Jewish woman. Her name was Roberta Recht. She ended up dying. Uh, Her family was killed in Auschwitz. We lived in Israel. My dad taught at Tel Aviv University, and we lived in Israel, and I really had a wonderful education. Christmas and Hanukkah. I celebrated for eight years. (laughs) Christmas and Hanukkah. Some of my best friends, like Tony Bernstein and Laura Levy, you know, we we call each other on the Jewish holidays, uh, you know, so because to me, both... The Judea's faith, I don't want to, I don't, and, and the Christian faith, and all, it's home, home. But I learned that because of Roberta, and I learned that because her family w- were killed in Auschwitz when her, um, we went, and, and so just know that I learned so much from Roberta about what happened to her family. I learned from my mother about what happens when a race is, is discriminated against and thought terrible things and, and impacted that way. And then my dad tried again, uh, and we have another, uh, I had another stepmom. She was, she was white. My dad married her. We ended up having a, 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 babe, a stepbrother. Well, her family said, we do not accept an African American. So it's, so to my stepmother, it's her or, or us. So my, my stepmom literally left, took my, my half brother, and left to Worcester, Massachusetts, because when you have, when she had the little one, it was very hard for her to be without her mom. And my my brother, my half brother, we're still not really a hundred percent connected. He told me he didn't even know that he was white until I'm sorry. He thinks he's white. He's mixed. When he went to college, people were tr- mistreating him. He didn't know that that like he had to. He's going through a lot right now. Let's just say that because he never got to know our family until he was 18 years old. They they basically isolated him from my family. So that's the backstory. That's the backstory. So the Nina that is now is about love and compassion. It's about not judging a book by its cover. It's making sure that we don't forget uh, that we stand on the shoulders of those who died at the Holocaust. We stand on the shoulders of African Americans that died so that I could be here sitting in front of you sitting together in an unsegregated South. Uh, I stand on the shoulders of all those that died in the Holocaust who, because we have to keep their memory alive so that their death is not in vain. And we have to also, I think, all those white, black, brown, yellow people who fought so that we could all be sitting shoulder to shoulder here having this dialogue. I'm talking to, I'm preaching to the choir about this. We're all in this room, obviously, here because it's something important to us. So, that answers the question. Well, the question was, tell the story about this. This. Uh, so, I had a, I had some preconceived notions about Mormon, the Mormon faith. I didn't understand it, and I had some negative preconceptions. Um, and it was in the, the back of my mind, even though I'm sharing how I try to be open and tolerant. But I was tested, and God played a trick on me. I ended up becoming a godmother to this beautiful little guy. And I went, and, and I, the family told me, all right, well, he's going to be baptized. Guess what he ended up being? Mormon. I didn't know. I just love this little guy. I love his family. He's an attorney. And uh, his wife, we're friends. And they, I was so honored. I didn't ask questions. What's your faith? So God convicted my heart because when I found out he was Mormon, I learned by going to the church, participating in activities, because all those preconceived notions melted away. And so even with my personal experience, I had a bias that I ended up getting convicted and learned a lesson, and all those preconceived notions, again, they melted away, but I had to keep my heart open. That's the only reason that I did, because love kept me open. And so that's the, at the end of the day, if we're open, 
we care about people, and when we are experiencing these biases, we just keep trying to learn about that person, learn about the situation, get into the other person's story to find out their story, cut through the cords that you may be carrying from the past. And I'm going to share a final one. I have a good friend whose dad was a World War II veteran, and he had a real issue with Japanese people. I mean, he didn't even wear clothes that were made in Japan. He died, uh, his dad died a few years ago at 98. So he's, the kids are personally challenged about even Japanese people, even to this day. So the point being, cut the cords from your parents, from your grandparents. Cut the cords from history that trickle down into your own life because it will help the next generation. It'll help your friends, your kids, your grandkids. Challenge yourself to open yourself up to people that look different, speak differently, or different religion. When you open your heart and you open the door, that's how change happens. I think that's so well said. And with Liz's permission, actually, I'm going to change the question up a little bit that we're going to the fishbowl with. I was going to ask everyone, and you're welcome to talk about this, if you've experienced racism or anti-Semitism or seen it happening to a peer or a friend or a neighbor and, and what happened as you discuss this among yourselves. But I also want you to talk about cutting the cords. Is there a time where your lens has been way off with someone where you assumed something about a peer or someone you were meeting with or someone you were going to have to speak with that was completely wrong. I'll tell you a funny story to get it started. And what's going to happen is each of us are going to go to one of the tables. We're going to visit for about 15 minutes. Then we're going to come back and you're going to have the opportunity to ask the entire panel a question. Last week I was at Midtown Reader and a woman came in, a really nice woman. I did not know her. She did not know me. She bought a couple of books, and I was visiting with her, and she said, you know, I'm so stunned that this is such an interesting bookstore with such diverse content and so many great options for good literature, because, you know, the woman who runs this bookstore used to be a Republican. (laughs) So that is hardly on the level of the topics we're discussing tonight, but rather than embarrass her (laughs) by saying, I am that woman, I said, you know, I agree. It's a great bookstore and we work really hard so that everyone feels welcome here and everyone can find something to read, something challenging, something exciting, something interesting. I know that she would be embarrassed if she knew I was that crazy Republican who started a bookstore. But I think it makes the point that we all have cords that we need to cut and we can't do what Herc is asking us to do unless we recognize our own faults first, and then we can begin to bridge the gap. So let's start the fishbowl question. You've got about 10, 15 minutes to talk among yourselves, reach in, pull a question, and we'll join you. Hey there, it's Vanessa, your podcast host, jumping in here real quick. So at this point in the program, each panelist joined a table to discuss the fishbowl questions with the audience members. Then they returned to the stage to share on behalf of the group. First, Ryan Cohn shares, followed by Roseanne Wood, then Dan Lesham, and finally Judge Nina. Our audio picks up with Ryan finishing his thoughts, and sorry to you, Ryan, for not getting the beginning of that. But anyway, he was making reference to the school swap video that was shared in part one of Love and Hate at Home, our previous episode on Village Squarecast. This school swap idea comes up a few times during the end of this program as audience members share thoughts and ideas. So I wanted to let you know, we have a link to the video on the show notes page for this episode. Just go to tlh.villagesquare.us slash squarecast, then episode 12. It's really incredible what these students did. Anyway, so here we go, jumping back into the program as Ryan is sharing about his tables discussion. The, the video that you showed is, is a great starting point, but we really need more of those. We need to be constantly exploring how do we bridge those divides and, and find opportunities to work together and, and, and to really understand each other's realities. We, we talked a little bit about that too, about how difficult it can be to get in a different group and because of the way we live and so forth and you know the swap video we showed of the students swapping we could do that on a more 
massive scale. I mean, I, I think about elementary schools could go across town and swap with each other, and a lot of eyes would be opened all around. So that's something I think a takeaway for me is to work on more of that because it's it's hard to, you know, if you have support to do that, it's not as scary. And so I think we can do that. Um, we also uh, just talked about how perception is so different depending on where you stand and uh, discussed the, the situation recently where there was a, a group of students with their Make America Great hats on and the Native American guy, and depending on your point of view, what you saw happened. Uh, and so that's just a reminder that, you know, maybe cutting some of those cords you mentioned and really trying to stand in the other person's shoe and try to understand how they could think that is what we need to do more of. We had a really great conversation, I think, and we tied together a few of the questions, at least in my mind, they tied together, but we talked about how the community, well, first of all, everyone thought that the village square was one of the resilience and one of the cool things built into Tallahassee's community. The second thing was how the community responded to the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting uh, with an event at Temple Israel that probably had 1,400 people in it, and a small percentage of that was Jews, and a large percentage of that were people from every corner of our community. And um, as someone who is a sort of leader within the Jewish community, because I have all these students on campus that turned to us for Jewish life, um, and we did another vigil the next night at FSU, that was a very powerful moment seeing how the community came together. So we said, number one, the city is still very segregated and people live in separate silos, kind of like the online segregation we were talking about, and yet you have that kind of an example of where across the city people are coming together. So figuring out ways maybe to multiply the things that bring us together beyond violence and uh, outbursts of hatred and bigotry and tragedy. Well, I was so impressed with our table because it's not easy to speak about these issues that we're talking about. And so thank you to the Village Square that we can. But at our table, um, we had uh, four people speak and they spoke about their experiences with anti-Semitism, uh, their experiences with racism, uh, and how much their upbringing impacted them as adults, uh, good and bad. For questions, raise your hand and Liz or Leslie will bring you a microphone oh. right here. Oh, yeah, our concern is really getting at what you guys all brought up, is what can we do about it? And so how can we meet so we actually do something instead of just, you know, we have a good talk? What can we do about it? Yeah, where do we go from here? What are the takeaways? Ryan, why don't you give us one as it relates to social media? So um, I just want to throw out a quick little uh, story of something that, that I found on uh, my personal Facebook account, uh, this last year during the uh, Florida gubernatorial race, where the primaries had just finished, we knew who the candidates were going to be, you know, Republican and DeSantis and Gillum for Democrat, and knew, given the primaries, that it was going to be extremely contentious, a bloody battle. And I posted on Facebook that, you know, given this, we should at least start by putting something out there before our, you know, hefty disagreements and debates that's positive about the other side. Trying to put ourselves in their shoes and understand their perspective before, you know, disagreeing. And it's perfectly fine to disagree and to debate. And I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll start out looking at both of these candidates. They're both very, you know, they're, they're both great fathers and family men who obviously love their families a lot. It's, it's obvious to me. Put that out there and said, look, you know, if, if, we can if we can do this, you start from a positive place, it hopefully will present opportunities for civility. And, and I, I got some comments back that were, you know, that were positive and supportive of that. But then I also got some that were negative from people who are, you know, fairly noticeable names in our community and influential local figures uh, who said basically... Civility is dead, and 
if we are trying to be civil in this debate, then there's a big power shift. And there, and suddenly, you know, we, we have to stand up. We have to, we have to fight for what we believe in. And, 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 you know, I said, no, there's a place for civility and there's a place for responsible, respectful debate. And when we, when we identify those opportunities where we can be brought together, that's where we can actually have a debate with those that we disagree with that gets us somewhere. That we're actually open and we're listening to the other side and not just jumping to our own conclusions and shutting out other thought. I think it can start with just starting it. Just take the initiative. Roseanne grabbed me when we were off the stage and we have very different perspectives on some education issues. I was on the State Board of Education, actually served two terms over a period of about 10 years. We did not know each other well, um, but she said, let's go get a cup of coffee. You know, I, it starts with having the courage to have a conversation and acknowledge that there might be more to somebody than you thought, that you might find more in common. You know, she was a little more, what did you say, Roseanne? long time because you know. <laughs> she said she had been mad at me for a long time which sort of amazed me because we really don't know each other it took me but but it took a lot of courage to say that and to say we probably have more in common than not let's go have a cup of coffee so just you taking the initiative with someone that you disagree with dan quickly any takeaways to, to that particular question i think it starts with listening to other people's stories it's very hard to sit down and honestly open yourself up to another human being, period. And then continuing that sentence and hear what they have to say and not be changed by it in terms of what you think of them and what you think of yourself. And one of my favorite philosophers that I won't quote directly because it's gibberish, um, but it says that to understand something means to be changed by it. To learn something means you're no longer the person you were before you knew that thing. And allowing ourselves to be open enough to change sounds like a fortune cookie. It's incredibly difficult to do. It's not something we can necessarily consciously will ourselves to do, but it is something we can practice. That's great. Nina, quickly. I, I like that question. It's a very personal question, but I, I think at the core of it all, it's simple. Love thy neighbor, regardless of whatever religion we're in, we or we observe. That's a f core foundation. Love thy neighbor, and that will solve a lot of it. And by the way, um, Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi was actually an attorney, uh, but one of the wonderful principles that I try to live by that he teaches is, you know, don't get overwhelmed because there's so there's such a void. There's so many needs. You know, there's so many hungry people. There's so many people in pain. There's so many people that need help, and it can overwhelm you. But one of the things that Gandhi teaches is only to worry about the, your sphere of control. So, for instance, you can help someone in your, on your street, in your backyard. You can help someone at the office. So you don't have to be overwhelmed by all of the globe or our community's issues. You can start one person at a time, right in your own backyard. And, and one of his quotes is, you affect the change that you seek. You affect the change you seek. It has to come, don't expect it from the outside in. It has to come from inside out, and it's all this beautiful ripple effect. So imagine if everybody in this room did one random act of kindness tomorrow, our school board member or you mentioned a smile. You know, a Holocaust survivor remembered a smile. That one smile kept them going. That could be a random act of kindness that all of us do tomorrow. Just smile at one stranger tomorrow, and I tell you it'll have a ripple effect. So remember, you affect the change that you seek. So if you want to have love in the world, then you be loving. If you want kindness in the world, then you be kind. If you want to have generosity in the community, you be generous. Uh, and so th that's it. It's simple. So love thy neighbor. Next question. Okay. Well, I have an idea. Oh, idea. To get, let's get, to get this going. Yes. Okay, this is the, the uh, concept. 
I've seen this done like out in Seattle, where you go to coffee shops and the coffee shop will pay for your coffee if you go up and talk to somebody you don't know. And also my other idea is have these coffee shops, have it like one night a week where you come in and you have these diverse talks, invite everybody from the community. Maybe the Chamber of Commerce visits these different local coffee shops and asks them to get this kind of thing going. That, that's what coffee shops used to be, is that's where you went to get the news and you go and debate issues with your neighbors. And then the other is, oh, the longest table, which is a great idea. But how about, instead of once a year, why don't we do that like once a month? And not just out on the street in the middle of downtown, how about people have it in their homes and invite a certain amount of people? Liz, that sounds like right on your list for the Village Square. We're putting you in charge of that. Get with Sue Dick. Make it happen. Okay. Um, I think we have time for one more quick question or comment, Leslie. So you gave me an idea, which the school swap. Could we organize the faith communities to have church shop swaps that lasted for more than the Sunday morning service, but actually you could swap and have an experience and go to meetings and participate in those activities. So we would have that interconnectivity on a more formalized basis. And I don't know if there's a union of worship organizations in this town or not, but to have them organize that so we could cross those barriers. Liz, do you want to quickly talk about Faith Friday? So we have a program called God Squad, and we're in the ninth year of God Squad, and we meet about eight times a year, and we talk about the topics that your mother told you not to discuss in polite company, faith and politics, and we actually like each other when it's all over. Um, so we'd love to have you join us anytime. They're free, and they're Fridays on, at noon. We've got one next week, and the topic is anime, the kind of isolation and loneliness that is rampant in our communities now. Yeah. Well, my question is, we in this room are very willing to have these discussions. It seems like that the people that hate and have the intolerance and the and are, are very indifferent to other people, never really want to come to these type of conversations. So we don't always know how they feel mm. and, and what drives their thought process. Whereas we all believe in love, we believe in God or a higher being, and we don't think that we're the ones in charge. Whereas it seems like people who have the biggest hate issues have a lot, I would say, of money. Okay, I'm just going to take it out that way. The, the, the ones that have are always wanting to war instead of build. Maybe if we stop having a war on poverty and start having a planting on poverty, like planting gardens, we would end poverty. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Dan, you were nodding during that question. You want to comment on... Yeah, you were just nodding as she was speaking, I thought. Maybe you want to respond. Oh, I thought she put it beautifully. I'm not sure what needs to be added. I mean, one of the questions is always, how do you stop speaking to people who preaching to the choir, right? So how do you, like we in this room for a moment will assume, think something similar about diversity, inclusion, and love. But how do we get the haters to come into the room, right? And believe it or not, in university circles, I've been in universities for 25 years, people actually have these conversations. And the whole point is that you can't force them into the room because then you would be enacting the kind of violence they're enacting on you. And I think to, to everything you've been saying tonight, the only way to change people is to change yourself, change the five people around you, who will each of themselves change the five people around them. If I can have just a second, scholars have been trying forever to figure out during the Holocaust why did some small number of people save or help or provide aid where the majority of people didn't. And they wanted to come up with an answer. They wanted to say it's people of faith. It wasn't. They wanted to say it was money. It wasn't. I mean, not that wealthier people helped more. 
Um, they, so they wanted to look point after point after point. What is the common factor? The only thing they've been able to find, people who came from supportive families. Mm-hmm. They're the people who expect the world will work that way, mm-hmm. that the right thing is going to happen, and that it's not going to be someone else doing it for you. It's going to be you doing it. Not And they keep asking people who save, why did you save? And they said, first of all, I never thought about it as saving. And second of all, I never did anything that anyone else wouldn't have done. And it's like, well, guess what? You did save, and no one else did it. So, But what's the miscommunication there? What is it that they know that I don't know when I ask them the question? And what they know is an upbringing and a worldview where people are in community with each other. Makes total sense. That is just a perfect way to land this plane. So I want to thank our fabulous panel tonight. Nina, Dan, Roseanne, Ryan. Wonderful. I hope you have all filled out your card so you can remember what you committed to do tonight. It will be mailed to you by the Village Square. And we're going to bring up Barbara Goldstein for one last comment and Heather Mitchell. Thank you so much for being here tonight. So when when I've been involved with these panels, one of the things I find really insightful is to take one key point from each speaker about what they offered. And so these were my takeaways from tonight. So Ryan, what I learned from what you said is it's really hard to bridge a gap. But if we don't try, then you never get there. Dan, what I learned from you is there is a continuum. Where are you on it and how are you dealing with people? Roseanne, I love the idea of modeling um, how you deal with issues in a very different manner and the story that you gave about what Barbara did with those middle school students. Sometimes it's not about locking someone in a room or making them write 100 times on a chalkboard. Sometimes it's about showing them why they're wrong instead of telling them why they're wrong. Nina, I just love you to pieces. I do. I learn something new about you every time I hear you speak, and I've heard you speak a hundred thousand times, and you were just amazing. But what I got from you was, don't judge a book by its cover, because you may just miss the most amazing things in the world by not doing that. So I just thought that was great. And Sally, how you handled this was just beautiful. Um, This has been a journey this week, especially for me. I have learned so much from students that have done projects and faculty members that have been engaged and listening to questions from community members and hearing perspectives about how you handled this and asking the questions that you did, you are such an asset to our community. So thank you, truly. So the last two things I'm going to say before I turn the microphone over to my favorite partner in crime here is, you have these cards on your table. I want you to do two things. One, I want you to fill it out. I did. These are the three things I am committing to do, and I will say them publicly because once you claim it publicly, you've claimed it, you have to do it. The first is I'm going to hashtag be nice. Someone cuts me off in traffic, I'm going to be nice. Someone looks at me because they see the color of my skin or what I'm talking about or what I'm engaged with and they're not happy with it, I'm going to be nice and smile. Words matter. Second, I'm going to cut the cords. I think that was hugely impactful. And the last is, I'm going to host a dinner party at my home with a very diverse group of people that I would have never thought I would have been friends with. So someone asked, what can we do? That's where you start. It starts here. So fill them out. And if you would, when you leave, put them on the table outside. We're going to mail these back to you in six weeks. We're going to see where you are on where you said, because I would. And now to fabulous Barbara. Thank you very much. And again, thank you. I'm going to wrap it up because it's getting late. On your table, you have a Herc brochure. Take a look at what the wonderful programs that we offer. You have the TCC Foundation Annual Report. See what TCC is doing. Check out both of our websites. We have Herc has a book club. Herc has a film series. We're going to be doing more programs together. And this is an amazing partnership. Thank you for coming. And I hope you keep supporting what we're doing. Hello again. 
It's Vanessa, your podcast host. A huge thanks to our panelists for sharing their expertise and to Herc and TCC for partnering with Village Square on this event and to you for joining us. We have a couple more things to share with you on this topic, but first a reminder about the follow-up activity that you too can participate in. Visit ttvs.org slash love to jot down some action steps that you plan to take in your own life to promote love and combat hate. We'll follow up with you in six weeks to remind you of your goals. Okay, so moving on, let's talk about God Squad. During the Q&A, there was that suggestion of applying the school swap idea inside faith groups. Well, Village Square has got you covered with their God Squad program. I can't possibly explain this better than Liz Joyner. So here's two minutes with Liz. This is actually a clip from our very first podcast episode where Liz shared how the Village Square makes pigs fly. So here's a short clip where she tells us about God Squad. After that first year, when we weren't quite getting the diversity of opinion and demographic diversity in that we wanted, we were hoping we would draw more conservatives into the conversation by creating a place in the public square that they could bring their faith. And again, a kind of a rich public square that includes everybody. And I do think that conservatives sometimes feel that they have to leave their faith at the door of the public square. And I think that's really important that we, that we not make that so. So that is the genesis of our second series of programs that we now just celebrated our 10th year of doing God Squad. And God Squad started, and this, this is a very Tallahassee story, so I have to tell it. God Squad uh, started one morning at Uptown Cafe where I was having a meeting and uh, Rabbi Jack Romberg and Father Dave Colleen of St. John's Episcopal Church were having a meeting and they were talking about doing something kind of like this. And we were talking about doing something kind of like this. And we saw each other face to face, human to human. And the conversation started then. And so then we gathered a very politically diverse group of pastors in the community to start God Squad. And we um, nurtured those relationships and we were off. And God Squad meets probably six or seven times uh, programs a year that we do. And the relationships between those people on the God Squad, I, there is nothing like it, honestly. I I feel like we just need to put them in charge of everything <laughs> and, and, and they'll be able to muddle their way through. They still disagree vehemently on so many things and such incredible things come out of that disagreement. It's really you, transcendent things ha- happen when you kind of, when you disagree and you find each other again, and you can maintain that, that disagreement and those different views and those different experiences and keep talking and keep that relationship alive. And so I have gotten so much inspiration from those conversations. And and I think the community has as well. And, you know, it's interesting, too, that we've got a pretty large number of uh, humanists, atheists who are regular attenders at the God Squad series. We've made friends. There are these wonderful friendships across complete differences in view on that, that has sustained for, for many years now. All right, you guys, doesn't that make you want to attend God Squad? Sure does for me. So good news, you can. More on that in a minute. But first, we're going to hear from one of our God Squad panelists. If you joined us for part one of Love and Hate at Home, our previous podcast episode, you heard a few words from Rabbi Shields before we kicked off the program. Rabbi Shields came to Tallahassee in the summer of 2019 to be the rabbi at Temple Israel after Rabbi Romberg retired. And Rabbi Shields is now on our God Squad panel. So as we wrap up this topic, we're going to share a little more of our recent chat with Rabbi Shields. At the end of this program, there was a Q&A session with the audience and a couple of things that came up were, what do we do about this? Where do we go from here? And also about how we're kind of when we sit in a, especially in an in-person Village Square event, often we feel like we're, we're speaking to the choir. We're talking to a group of people who want to learn and move forward together and want to really, you know, dig into differences and figure out how we can all kind of grow together. And so when we talk about hate and when we talk about the extreme 
parts of our society. How do we make any movement on that? Well, I mean, I think there are some basics we can do, like feed the hungry and heal the sick and comfort the bereaved. The challenge as a, a rabbi and a member of the Jewish community is there are certain times when even feeding the hungry is not simple because sometimes there are strings attached, right? You, yes, you can feed the hungry, but in order to get fed, you must come into, you must accept how we think. And and I think, I, I don't know what to do with that. And maybe there's an opportunity to engage folks who don't identify with organized religion and folks within the religious wing who say, that's, that's not a bad thing. Just because you're agnostic or atheist doesn't mean you don't have a value system. And, and for me, that's a big part of the divide. And one of the things I love about the village square is when, when the folks who from the atheist association of Tallahassee or whatever come to the, the sessions. And for me, that's a beautiful partner and uh, to discuss and doubt and wrestle with the things together. But I am quite sure that's not really a shared value. And, and for me, it, someone who's agnostic atheist connects to the world in a, in a different way, not through the religious lens, their opinions and thoughts are just as valued and they have a value system. And, and that's another piece um, is we can break away from this false notion of Judeo Christian values as some American value. It's just not true. It never was for our founders. And the idea that Judeo dash Christian are some sort of shared value set is not true. There are Jewish values. There are Christian values. Often, they overlap and lead to um, common cause, but there's no Judeo-Christian values. Benjamin Franklin was not a Judeo-Christian. He didn't imagine this country being founded as a Christian country, and neither did 99% of the, the founders of our country. So I think, um, I think there's room for the conversations to grow. I also think there's room um, in, in Jewish tradition, the idea of wrestling and arguing with with a real sense, the highest sense of the word is something that can be brought to the table and not necessarily, yes, be respectful, yes, but sometimes you have to call a spade a spade and sometimes you have to highlight differences and sometimes you have to have a values conversation and, and convince and persuade others um, because, you know, there are certain things in many religious traditions that perfectly wonderful. I honor it. I respect it. I see the value of it. I see it as a wonderful metaphor. And then there's some things that are just completely unpalatable. And I have an obligation as a rabbi and to stand up against that. And, and, and that's, I think, something that can um, continue to develop what those conversations look like, who's included, and um, are we reinforcing privilege in how the instructions we give, or are we um, working to break down that privilege? And are we asking people with like a complexion like myself, even though when I put a yarmulke on, maybe some of my privilege goes away, but are, are we saying that the division and the problems in this country or in our community is racism, a black problem. A lot of folks would say yes. Whereas no, a big part, we have to look at ourselves as white people and say, we are part of the problem. How are we going to look into our, our souls and address this problem? And I think often you look to the oppressed to solve the oppression when they're not necessarily in a position to do so. And the incentive for everybody else to keep things the way they are, the way it is, 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 is front and center. Well said, Rabbi Shields. That last point is something I think about a lot these days. For more insights from Rabbi Shields, check out God Squad. Village Square's new season of programming is just about to start, so subscribe to our newsletter at tlh.villagesquare.us to stay tuned in to upcoming God Squad events and actually all of our events. You can also hear new and old God Squad programs soon on the Village Squarecast. Personally, I think I've been searching for God Squad since I was in seventh grade. For real, y'all, I'm not kidding. I didn't grow up going to church, and when I got to middle school and the faith discussions started happening more in my circle of friends, I realized I didn't know anything, and I also didn't know how to talk about it, what words to use, or what questions to ask. So I talked to my mom about that, and she started taking me to different churches, and also educating us at home. 
But you know, in the seventh grade, I probably would have rather heard it from someone else. So now I'm thinking that God Squad would have been the perfect way for me to explore faith at that time of my life, if it was around then, you know. And also, it's probably perfect for me now, so I'm excited about listening to more of these myself. Okay, finally on this episode, I'm going to give Liz the last word. This is another little piece of our interview earlier this summer, but this piece hasn't been released anywhere before now. I've been holding on to this gem because I knew it would be perfect for an upcoming topic. I just didn't know how perfect. As I listen now, I realize it could have been made for this episode. So bring us home, Liz. Pun totally intended. Okay, Liz, so one other thing I think we talk about and hear about a lot lately is technology and the impact that that has on our relationships. And so can you talk a little bit about your experience and just how does how does this help us? How does it hurting what we're, we're trying to do overall as a society? You know, it's interesting because of the changes in the media environment over really not a huge amount of time. Everything has changed in how we relate to each other and how civics is done. And, and honestly, I think that we can be forgiven for the fact that we, that it's taken a little while for us to figure out just how destructive it's been in many ways. And obviously, I mean, you know, in, in some ways that during the, you know, COVID ep- epidemic, it's really clear to us how technology is incredible. There, there would be so many things that would be so much more broken if we didn't have technology. And it's here to stay. It's not going away. But that means that we have to adapt our spaces to that, that reality now. When you look at the national media landscape, you have people who make a bazillion dollars keeping us tuned in and angry. And um, I call them the professional polarizers. And that that really is their their job. You're not going to tune in if they're talking about, you know, bridging division. (laughs) It doesn't quite have the natural audience the same way. And so, um, so that's going to be what it is. And that is that if we live our life, our civic life distant, and all digitally, then then it's going to keep getting worse. We've got to flip it. And we've got to, to, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not terrible to live our, to, you know, get what we need from the digital environment, but also to do the, the hometown real life connectedness across differences. And if we do that, if we see the center of gravity as being in our hometown, the, the center of gravity for American democracy is in our hometown. And in fact, that's not a new thing. That's actually the old thing. The, that is the very genesis of the deepest, most important, central, and unique aspect of American democracy. When Tocqueville came to America and observed how we Americans were different than Europeans, that's what he saw. He saw, you know, groups of people, hometowns of people forever uh, creating associations that, that we saw this democracy as being ours to, to drive and to take care of and to nurture. And that was different than it, than it was in Europe at the time. And that was, that was how you do it without a king, right? As you gather with people that share your fate, who live with you, who are near you. And sometimes it's ugly. Sometimes they're chairs that are thrown. Sometimes they're disagreements. But that's the center of a gravity. That's the ballast of healthy democracy. And so that isn't a new thing. We just have to, we have to take these changes that we've seen in technology. We need to say, okay, now we get it. There are going to be filter bubbles. We're going to naturally find the people online who agree with us. And that's not always a good thing. It's not always a bad thing, but it's not always a good thing where we've got to break out of those silos because we know they're there. So so we're going to we're going to disrupt. And this is a unique characteristic I think of Americans is I think we're really capable of doing that of saying okay, took us a little while <laughs> to get on top of this, but we see how this ends up. So now we're going to shift things. We're going to change things. We're going to bring them back to the healthier place where the the government closest to you the citizenship closest to you is is where you engage most deeply and interestingly enough 
that, uh, you know, I think that more liberals are coming around to that opinion right now under the current administration. But I also think that um, it's something that conservatives have believed for a long time. So I think there's actual political agreement on that idea that we need to get more looped in to our communities where we can know people who disagree with each with us, where we can have cross cutting relationships with them. And it, it's amazing how that that is going to fix a lot of things that will not be fixed elsewhere. If we keep looking for them to be fixed in Washington, we will keep failing. They will not be fixed there because it's not it's not a structure that allows it to be fixed. But in our hometowns, it, it is. You know, I think of I think of uh, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz uh, with this a little bit in that, you know, she always had the ability to go back to Kansas if she just clicked her heels together three times. She just didn't know it. And so I think that one thing that I, you know, m- on, number one on my bucket list is to tell as many people as possible that that is really doable. And we have that power. And if we do it, amazing things will change. They will, some of these things that we keep trying to address with a new digital uh, distant endeavor, we were looking in the wrong place to solve the problem. We've got in our strategic plan, we've got a picture of a person on a street corner under a street lamp and a police officer next to him. And the gentleman is bent down in all fours and looking for something. The police officer asked him what he, what he lost and, and where he lost it. And he said, well, I've lost my keys. Where'd you lose it? Uh, I lost it at the other end of the block. And the police officer says, well, why in the world would you be looking for them here if you, if you lost them at the other end of the block? And he said, the light is better. So, and the reason that's in our strategic plan is we are never going to solve this problem that is around us every day that is a, 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 a growing weight and burden if we keep looking where the light is better, but where the keys are not lost. The, where the light is better is with strangers digitally on social media platforms where we don't ha- we can't have relationships in real life where the keys actually are is right here at home and we can step outside our door safely at a social distance now <laughs> but step outside our door and do it Yes, that is so wonderful. And it just makes me so thankful that you are doing this work, not only here in our community, because it's so important, but um, also, you know, sharing what you've learned with other communities. I, I do think that this is the path forward. And I'm so glad that the Village Square has you and that you started this Village Square to bring that home to us here. Well, and you know, um, the Village Square is something that was inspired by this community. It, it is the nature of this community that was our inspiration. It's what we saw. Um, so in some ways, we, we didn't really do anything all that amazing. We just looked at what we saw and we said, let's, let's make it bigger. And, and so I think the, the whole community should feel deeply connected to and, and, and appreciated for who we who we are as a hometown. I think I think the world has a lot to learn from us right now. Right. Yes. I I love what you said earlier about Tallahassee being the capital of capital. And I just think that we we do live in such a special place and that it's the right move to start looking more locally and recognize what we have and figure out how we can use that to all come together and do this very hard but important work. It's interesting, too, because I would say that all these years later, um, some of my closest friendships are with people who don't see politics the same way as me at all. And I find them the most dynamic, the most interesting, the the most elucidating because because I learn things. I'm not just going over the same territory over and over again. And in the rare occasions when I've been in a group, in a, in, and I my political opinions really haven't shifted a whole lot. Um, and that's actually important to, to say. I mean, they have some around the margins, but I, I see the humans and the good intentions and the, and the wisdom and the things I don't see well in those other people now. So it change, it changes everything. Right. And, and it, and if I'm with a bunch of people who completely agree with me, not only is it a little boring, it's a little boring. And I realize now I used to spend all my time doing that, but it, it, it also, um, feels like we're not, we're not getting anywhere. We're not, we're not learning anything. We're not, the idea isn't getting any better. It's flat. And so I think that when people start to live their lives more this way, I, I think they'll have the same experience. Now you know why I gave Liz the last word. 
except, you know, I do have a few more words, right? We do live in such an exceptional community. There are countless examples of that, like Red Eye Coffee. In response to the George Floyd tragedy, they hosted discussions with diverse community members, just like the suggestion you heard a few minutes ago. And also, Ology Brewing Company partnered with us recently to host an event where diverse people were paired up to have conversations about race. You can hear all about that in episode eight of the Village Squarecast called Beer and Conversation. Please subscribe to the Village Squarecast in your favorite podcast app or on our website at tlh.villagesquare.us slash squarecast. You can also stay up to date on Village Square's new season by subscribing to our newsletter at tlh.villagesquare.us. Find the show notes page for this episode with links to resources mentioned at tlh.villagesquare.us slash squarecast. We appreciate you listening to Love and Hate at Home presented in partnership with Herc and TCC. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to the Village Squarecast. Cast.